0: This episode features discussions of medieval torture and extreme violence that some people may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. If they had known that Johan was a monk, they wouldn't have led him into Hunyadi Castle. Transylvania was Catholic now though no Catholics had lived here the night before the Hungarians' declaration of the supposed one true faith. But Johan and his flock would not be cowed by an occupier's lies. He hoped that his job as a laborer within the ever-growing castle would allow him to find some vulnerability in their oppressors to give his people the upper hand. The grandest tower in the castle was still under construction, and it overlooked the newly appointed Lord of Transylvania's council room, the perfect place to work late into the night, collecting the noble's secrets. But Yohan was careless, and one of the guards spotted him. Yohan had expected his punishment to be swift. He served no further use to these men, and he knew too much of their plans. But instead, they put him back to work, telling him he could listen all he wanted, as long as he did a good job. His assignment was in a new part of the tower he hadn't seen before. While they'd mostly been working on a defensive structure to hold an armory and other guard posts, this area looked almost like a small office, maybe a room for accounting or other sorts of logistics. Johan could barely fit his body through the opening the Masons were probably still sizing, but he had managed. Nervous, he did his best to go about his work, carving the stone around the window with the intricate shapes his employer had requested. But when he stopped his chiseling, he heard a sound. He turned to look and say hello to the mason and his son, but the opening in the wall was gone. Johan dragged his hands against the stone, feeling for some secret latch that would allow him to exit. But the room had no entrance or exit. He pounded on the stones, screamed for someone to save him from this prison, but no one came. He tried to dig his way out with a knife. Dust coated his lungs, making it hard for him to breathe. But the mortar was too thick, and his knife was too small. He begged for God, any God, to help him in his hour of need. No one even noticed his disappearance. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Corvin Castle, the home to one of Transylvania's greatest medieval leaders, the man who captured Vlad the Impaler. And discover why, to this day, it's haunted. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as podcasts, other shows, on Spotify or wherever else you listen to podcasts. If you ask a travel agent where Dracula's castle is, they'll say Bran Castle, a gray and brown fortress that would be at home in any universal horror film. But if you're looking for the color version of that castle, the Gothic castle of your Transylvanian medieval nightmares... Look to Corvin Castle. About 150 miles east of Romania's border with Serbia, Corvin Castle is a 14th-century fortress that was renovated into a palatial home in 1446. It is sometimes known as Hunyadi Castle, but both names actually refer to the same person, the castle's most famous owner and developer, John Hunyadi, whose family had a raven in their crest to reflect their other name, Corvin Hunyadi was Transylvania's regional governor, or voivode, for much of the mid-15th century, and he is one of the most iconic historical figures in Eastern Europe. Medieval Transylvania alternated between being part of the Hungarian or the Ottoman Empire, but Hunyadi was a great general and statesman. Elegantly managing complicated allegiances while developing new and devastating military tactics. Construction on Corvin continued under Hunyadi's son, Matthias Corvinus's ownership, and by 1480, the castle was regarded as one of the most impressive in Europe. Each of the building's many towers, colonnades, and vaulted rooms seemed to have their very own ghosts including that of a pale monk screaming to be freed after he was walled up for spying on Hunyadi and his vassals. But there's one legend from the mid-15th century that is less about espionage and more about survival. Hassan's hands were cracked and bloody, but now he couldn't remember a time when they weren't he dedicated the last 15 years of his life to one cause, finding water. Almost two decades ago, he, Suleiman, and Kazem had been soldiers in the Ottoman army, fighting for their land's freedom from the Hungarian empire. But they had lost, and now they were housed in Hunyadi's dungeons. They could always hear the workmen up above as hammers slammed and rock was stacked into place. It seemed so bustling up there. And all this time, Hassan discovered, they had been doing it without reliable access to water. Many of Hunyadi's engineers had searched, but none had been able to find a potential well to service the castle. Its occupants were reduced to collecting rainwater or carrying massive buckets from the Zlasti River. So the Voivode made the Turks a deal If they could find water in the strangely barren land surrounding Corvin Castle, they would be granted their freedom. Left with few hopes for the future, and even fewer options, Hassan, Suleiman, and Kazem had agreed to Hunyadi's terms. They would draw the water from the soil and return to their homes with the invaders' blessing. The act of digging left too much time for the mind to wander. As he drove his shovel's blade through the rough earth, Hassan found himself dreaming of using the tool against the guards at escaping. He would slice them open and run, he thought, before squinting at the village down below. Would an Ottoman in prison rags be allowed to hide in such a place? No. The holes he dug every day were his only chance at freedom, and even he knew they were a slim one at that. The work was repetitive, and the men could only sneak a handful of words to each other under the captor's watchful eye. At night, Hassan had to pull his fingers off the shovel. The years of digging had left his muscles stiff, and he would frequently wake up to his hands clenching air, fighting something he could not see. A weight sat on his chest, and sometimes it seemed red eyes watched him in the dark. Even in the searing light of day, he felt something waiting, just out of sight, something that scratched and clawed at his shoulders, as if trying to pull him away from the dry ground. He feared he was going mad, but freedom, he reminded himself, was worth every cost. Yet he'd grown much older than his ears would suggest. His mind was eaten away by the repetition, and his body Thinner each passing year. He told himself it was the work, but it was always worse at night, after he'd had what should have been a modicum of rest, like something was feeding on him. It had been 15 winters. The delays in work when the ground was frozen was the only way Hassan was ever able to count the years. But spring had come. And sometimes, when the castle gate was open, he could see the lush green of the town of Hunadwara nestled below the fortress. It had been a particularly bad day when it came to the scratching and pulling against his body. Hassan told himself he was just tired, itchy. They hadn’t been in the sun for months. But then what was definitely five blade-like claws raked across his back. Pulling him to the ground. Hassan's body ached, and he could feel blood soaking into his shirt. He didn't care. Whatever it was did not own him, just as Hunyadi didn't own him. He would be free. Hassan dragged his tool through the ground. It fought him, and he dragged harder. Some deep, wrathful part of him had been roused from a decade long sleep his breaths came sharp and angry, and he began to cut the earth the way he'd wanted to cut down Hungarians so many years ago. For a moment, Hassan worried that he'd lost all sense of reality. He was no longer digging through soil. He had found mud. After years of searching, losing pieces of himself along the way, he had finally found his salvation. He soaked his tired hands in the cold wetness, nearly throwing himself into the muck in jubilation. He tried to yell for the guard, but his voice had weakened after years of limited use. He made his way over and tried to tell of his discovery. Again, his vocal cords failed him. Water, he finally whispered lips parched. The guards did not believe him at first, but then he indicated his muddy clothes. Suleiman and Kazem were emerging from their own holes, echoing Hassan's promise. Water. They had done the impossible in this unforgivable land, and they would be rewarded for it. Hassan had hoped that the process would be quick, But he was not surprised when days passed as he sat in his cell, waiting for the wheels of justice to turn ever so slowly in his favor. His body sagged with the relief of not having to work, and the knowledge that soon this horrible nightmare would be far behind him. He hoped that his family was still alive, that there would be someone to come home to. But the only thing that truly mattered was his escape from this Hungarian stronghold. The sounds of construction were closer this time, stone brushing against stone as the prisoners worked. Hassan could do nothing but listen and wonder what was to become of him, but he did not receive any answers. None of the guards would talk to him and he was separated from both Suleiman and Kazem. For the first time in 15 years, Hassan was alone and there was nothing to keep him occupied. He never thought he would miss the sun after spending so long beneath its scorching rays. He could not be certain how long he waited in his dark and damp cell for an answer, but eventually a guard came to his door with a set of keys rather than a silver dish of food. The door swung open and the guard waited for Hassan to move his aching body out of the cell. His legs were cramped and stiff. They creaked and groaned as he lifted himself up and headed towards the hallway. The guard said nothing to him. He pulled out a set of manacles and slid Hassan's wrists through the metal ring. Hassan asked why this was necessary and it was met with a hard slap against his jaw that sent his skull vibrating. The guard told him that it was not his place to question Lady Elizabeth's orders. Hassan was puzzled. He had never heard of Lady Elizabeth. The doors to the Knights Hall opened. It had been years since Hassan had stood in this room. He noted that more weapons had been added in his absence, all sharpened to a fine point. The guard yanked on his manacles, pulling him so far into the room that he stumbled to the floor. They held him there in a forced kneel. In front of Hassan was a crimson throne. The regal woman who sat upon it was announced as Elizabeth Silagi, the widow of the great John Hunyadi and the Queen Mother of Hungary. She studied Hassan in silence, a serene smile on her face. Hassan tried to stand firm against her gaze, but he was tired. He tried to clear the cobwebs from his throat so he could speak. Her smile transformed into a snarl. She told him that her husband was dead. And in her mind, his promise of freedom had died with him. Hassan was in shock. He asked how long it had been since the voivode's death. Her face was unreadable as she told him that her husband had passed three years ago. Hassan's thoughts raced and his heart sped up to follow them. Three years of toil and pain when their captor had already perished. Three years of carrying on because no one saw fit to tell these men that they weren't needed anymore. But Elizabeth wasn't done with her revelations. In an almost bored voice, she told him that the entire castle was grateful for what the three had accomplished. Truly, it was an impossible task, and yet a hundred feet underground, they had found something of genuine promise. A well was being erected as they spoke. Elizabeth was not an ungracious woman, so she had come up with a way to repay the men for their efforts. They were to be sentenced to death within the next month. Be thankful, she told Hassan. Your suffering is drawing to an end. Hassan's body gave out from the news, his head hitting the floor. He woke in his cell, the manacles still clamped tightly to his wrists. Anger burned inside him. He had broken his body and his mind, but the only thing he had earned was death. Thoughts of revenge danced in his head, but Elizabeth was a smart woman. The lack of sufficient food and the hard work had made him frail. He would be no match for the guards, nor even Elizabeth herself were he to attack. Hassan asked the guard to pass a message to the lady of the castle. He appreciated that she had shown mercy in allowing him to die. He only wanted to live as long as it took for the well to be built, for he would like to leave an inscription on it in his mother tongue. Giving water to the Hungarians was his crowning achievement and he wanted a way to cement his legacy. Weeks passed without an answer, and then the guard appeared again. He dragged Hassan by his manacles to a large stone well. The guard handed him one set of tools with which to engrave his name. After this, Hassan would be brought to the knight's hall once more. His throat would be slit, and his remains fed to the bear's. This was his ending. Hassan worked with a single-minded determination. His letters were clean and precise. Any Ottoman prisoner that would be forced to come to this well would know his meaning. But his captors would remain blissfully unaware. When he finally pulled his chisel away from the stone, he turned to the guard with a smile. Perhaps that strange thing that had accosted him for so many years would smile as well. Perhaps it had been trying to warn him all along. Still, Hassan took some solace. His journey was ending, but the rest of the world would know the truth about this place, full of betrayers and monsters and ugliness. His inscription made that all too clear. You have water, but you have no soul. The legend of the Turkish prisoners is one of the oldest stories associated with Corvin Castle. It's said that John Hunyadi struck a deal with three Turkish fighters, offering them freedom if they could find a viable site for a well on the property. 15 years later, the well was built, but Elizabeth Silagi, Hunyadi's widow, sentenced the men to death, allowing them to leave an inscription to commemorate their toil. Today, the worker's infamous message can still be seen in its original place in the castle's courtyard, though the well is now a fountain. The legend of the inscription has persisted, although recent experts state that the medieval Arabic etched into the stone simply reads, who wrote this inscription is Hassan, who lives as a slave in the city by the church. But Hassan would not be the last man tortured in Corfin's halls leaving blood and pain on this plane and the next. Misery was concentrated here, distilled into anger, regret, and violence in the darkness. And if you know any legend about medieval Romania, it's this. There is no darkness deeper in any man than in Vlad the Impaler. Coming up, we'll look at how the legendary leader and Corvin Castle crossed paths. Now, back to the story. Corvin Castle's most famous legend involves Transylvania's most famous, or perhaps most colorful, leader, Vlad III of Wallachia, sometimes known as Vlad Dracula, or Vlad the Impaler. Like the master of Corvin Castle, John Hunyadi, Vlad was a savvy political survivor, frequently playing the Hungarians and the Ottomans against each other in order to return to power after being deposed. His critics in Germany, Hungary, and Rome called him a violent tyrant who ran people and animals through with poles at his slightest whim. But he is often held up as a Romanian national hero who created a fair, if brutal, justice system and fractured the despotic rule of the Wallachian nobles who were exploiting the peasants. The complicated nature of Vlad Dracula's legacy is best reflected in his evolving relationship with the Hunyadi family. John Hunyadi had Vlad's father and brother killed when Hunyadi invaded Wallachia for Hungary, but he and Vlad fought side by side to repel the Ottomans from Transylvania in 1448. Facing an insurrection, Vlad later sought the aid of Hunyadi's son, Matthias Corvinus, who had become the king of Hungary. But Corvinus had heard of Vlad's violent tactics and frequently shifting allegiances. He detained Dracula at Corvin Castle, waiting for a caucus of nobles to form so they could have a trial. He continued to wait for 14 years. Vlad had never considered himself innocent, but at least in this instance, he could say he was not guilty of the crimes he had heard discussed. In an act of either ignorance or hubris, Corvinus had imprisoned him just below the chamber where the nobles gathered to discuss his fate. He strained his ears, but he only caught words like torture and treason, words that did not apply to his work as a loyal and patriotic ruler. Everything he had done, he had done for Wallachia. And it was for the good of Wallachia that he would free himself and return to them to protect the realm from both invaders and corruption. There was no way for Vlad to hear exactly what was being said about him through the thick stone floors, so he tried to bribe a guard for information. The man spat in his face. Vlad lunged for the man through the bars, grabbing the edge of his tunic, He gripped the guard tightly, pulling him closer to the cold iron, speaking in an icy whisper. They put the bars here to protect themselves from him, made up lies to keep him enclosed. If you want to live, he told the guard, you must never forget that. He snarled at the man, baring his teeth. When his captor flinched, he let the man go. Let the guard warn the others that he was a monster, a creature of malice. He had a reputation to uphold, and it served him well to leave them on the edge around him, wondering what strange things he might do if he wasn't respected and obeyed. This was not the first time that Vlad had been held captive. He'd spent most of his teen years imprisoned, and the memory of those tight cells and the punishments he and his brother Radu endured had never left him. In this new, cramped cage... Vlad found his memories and his reality merging together. He would dream about the old cage and wake up in a similar spot on the floor with nothing to comfort him but rats. Four days passed with the guards leaving him alone. No visits, no sneers, and no food. He could smell the slop the other prisoners were given. Some mysterious, like, moldy grains a charred hunk of meat, maybe some mushrooms or cabbage if they were feeling generous. It made his stomach stir, but he would not beg for small luxuries. He stayed close to the inner wall of his cell, protecting his back from an unseen enemy he expected, but knew he wouldn't recognize. At night, the only sound louder than his torturously empty stomach was the scratching of rat feet on the stone. Patiently, he tracked their movements. Vlad picked one up, watching it squirm in his hands. He sunk his teeth into the rat, tearing warm flesh from the bones of the animal. The blood slid down his chin, and the creature wiggled in his hand, but he did not stop. The rat flailed and bit at his skin. Vlad used his free hand to break the rat's neck, He cracked open the smaller bones and ate the organs when the flesh was all gone. When he was done, he left the bones in a neat pile just outside his cell. The bones were gone when he woke the next morning. But still, no food came. Perhaps they felt their problems were solved. Who needed a cat when you had Vlad the Impaler in your dungeon? He paced the tiny space, needing something to do. He called to the prisoners on either side of him, but was met with silence. Perhaps they had hidden him away from the rest, worried that he would convert them to his cause. But Corvinus was a proud man, as quick to punish as Vlad was. He would run out of space eventually, and then Vlad would have a new distraction. The sun had not yet risen when they started. Vlad woke to the desperate pleas for life coming from further down the hallway. He could hear the crank of the stretching machine and the pop of a prisoner's bones pulling out of their sockets. The incessant pounding that accompanied the screams of another prisoner echoed in his ears until he could not think. He'd never had to wear the spiked devices meant to close around one's limbs. But he had seen a man walk by in those evil metal boots, each step a new torture. Though the Hungarians called him a monster, Vlad had never seen the value of such tortures. He had devised new and brutal means of killing, yes, but he did not demand information at the point of a knife. The horrors he wrought were meant to be a deterrent to others who would exploit Wallachia. He had first-person experience with pain, for pain's sake, and he would not visit it upon others. The noises were relentless. The guards did not appear to stop for sustenance or sleep. He could hear that some of the prisoners were eventually shuffled to a different cell as they cried tears of relief. But the heavy thudding of the iron boot could always be heard as someone was forced to walk while the spikes drove deeper into their skin. Vlad waited for his cell doors to open, for him to be carried into the darkness like the others had. But no one came for him, so he was plagued with the sounds of pain. They haunted him, whether he was awake or asleep. He could not push his own pain away when the noises were devouring his thoughts, dredging up memories of earlier imprisonments and the torture he had endured when he was only a youth. He had begged for death as his fingernails were pulled from his fingers. He had been threatened with a stretching machine until he'd broken into sobs. He'd watched in silence as his comrades lost their lives to these methods of torture. Guards slipping on the blood as they carried the bodies away. These sights came back to him now, a visual to go with the horrific sounds. Sleep eluded him. The rats had learned to avoid him. Vlad could no longer tell how much time had passed. He had even forgotten what had brought him to this place. Instead, he saw his brother Radu standing by the bars. Radu called for the guards, who brought him food and joked with him. Vlad tried to warn Radu not to trust them, but this vision of his brother did not listen. The doors slid open for the first time. Radu followed the guards down the hall. The slamming of the bars behind them rang like a death knell. Vlad heard his screams but he could not see what they were doing to him. He could not hear the devices they were using, just the pitiful cries of a younger brother, trying and failing to keep his fear inside. Vlad broke his silence and called for the guards to stop. He would take Radu's place, but no answer came. Vlad heard the snap of bone and more cries. His throat burned as he screamed for them to release Radu. Then came the silence. Vlad waited to see if Radu would cry or scream, but all he heard was the echo of two pairs of footsteps where there should have been three. The guards approached his gate again. They mocked him and the weakness he'd shown. He was no more human than the rest of them, breaking at the slightest pain. Vlad was confused. It was Radu who had experienced the pain, not him. He tried to rush for the bars, attack the guards again, but then he felt the spike sticking into his calf and collapsed to the floor. His tears were mostly salt. He had not drank anything, but dripping rainwater in a long time, Time seemed to have collapsed in on itself. He was 16 and 30 all at once. The screams blended and bled into his dreams. Soon, there was no sleep. Only memory, like a waking dream. So vivid that he could feel his old scars open, wide and crimson. But it was all the same. All of eternity was pain. His and Radu's pain. And when Vlad next tried to eat one of Corvin Castle's rats, he woke to anguish and blood. He had bit into his own forearm, his teeth slick with red. He paused for a moment. Then he bit down again. While he is regarded as one of the scariest figures in European history, historians have argued at length about the particular details of Vlad Dracula's life. One source of contention is where Vlad Dracula was imprisoned by Matthias Corvinus, the son of John Hunyadi. Some believe that he stayed at Corvin Castle, but the best-preserved records of his imprisonment refer to Matthias Corvinus's summer castle, Visegrad. According to legend, Vlad was kept in the dungeons below Council Hall as Corvinus attempted to gather enough high-ranking nobles to stand in judgment of the Wallachian prince. Vlad would remain in prison for almost 15 years, only being released after converting to Roman Catholicism and agreeing to fight for Corvinus against the Ottomans. Legends about Vlad III Dracula's stay at Corvin Castle claimed that he survived on rats while imprisoned and that the screams of the surrounding prisoners drove him mad. Perhaps part of the reason that the legend of Dracula's imprisonment at the castle persists is that Corvin's Keep just feels like a place where a medieval monster would dwell. The castle is often described as being much more imposing than Vlad's own supposed place of residence, Bran Castle, about 200 miles to the east the Gothic architecture and wax figures of prisoners being tortured in the dungeons of Corvin certainly lend a sense of atmosphere that's a perfect home for a creature of the night. And the centuries-old events in these stone halls certainly explain the shrieks and moans staff have heard in the castle after dark. One certainly doesn't want to end up in these stone rooms at night. But thanks to Corvin's checkered history, the castle grounds might actually be worse. Coming up, we'll have more horror from Corvin Castle. Now, back to the story. Under John Hunyadi and his son Matthias Corvinus, Corvin Castle was known as one of the finest buildings in all of Europe, but the Hunyadi family line ended with Matthias's illegitimate son. The building passed to Prince Gabriel Béthlen of Transylvania in the 17th century, and he began to dismantle some of the castle's gothic elements in favor of a more modern Renaissance style. Some of these bits of architectural history were restored after a fire in the 19th century, but many records of the building's original look and feel had been lost. So the renovations ended up going more for drama than historical accuracy. It lends Corvin an alternately storybook or nightmarish feel, depending on the time of day and the weather. The only way to breach Corvin Castle's walls is by bridge. The front entrance is a thin stone walkway across a green expanse. A weeping willow waits below, beside a small pond, as... Tightly nestled towers and turrets climb to the sky. The entranceway is headed by two small windows high above, and a larger windowed area just below it almost looks like an enclosed balcony. Beneath, the stone archway waits like a gaping maw. Thanks to the renovation completed in the 17th and 19th centuries, the castle's gothic architecture has been, shall we say, enhanced by more storybook touches, as they tried to emulate what medieval architecture looked like without reliable records about the castle's construction itself—namely, bright crimson shingles crowning the pointed spires. Below, intricate stained-glass windows glow in the sun. Vaulted ceilings rise in the great halls and meeting rooms, and pointed arches lead out to the building's various courtyards it's easy to see that kings lived within the castle's 42 chambers. But Corvin was also used as a filming location for Warner Brothers' The Nun, the origin story for the scariest villain in The Conjuring franchise. Add a cloudy day and some atmospheric fog, and the grand tan and red staircase leading down to Corvin's largest courtyard grows sinister. The pointed arch below the stairs begins to look like a portal to the underworld. But the most sinister architectural element of Corvin Castle is actually outside, and it has a very practical, if unnerving, use. When Aline woke, he did not immediately notice anything out of place. He'd spent the last three years sleeping on stone, sometimes with a thin layer of hay between him and the ground, yes. But on the warmer nights, the cold rock had felt better against his skin. Then he noticed that the light was too bright, glaring almost, and Aline had spent so long in darkness that his eyes struggled to adjust to this change. He squinted and waited for his vision to focus, but all he could see were amorphous orbs of white and gray. Brighter spots danced around them, but he knew those were an illusion. He reached his hand out carefully, feeling around for straw or bars. He feared his jailers had decided to expose him to the elements in some way, but he was stunned to find grass beneath his hand, patchy and emaciated, but grass all the same. He pushed himself up, willing his eyes to come to focus. But getting closer to the sun only made things worse. And then he heard the breathing. While he had several loud compatriots in his cell, their breaths had never been this heavy or even. Aline wanted to believe that he had simply been transferred to another place, away from the hellscape of Corvin, free or at least in a place with fewer walls. Perhaps his fellow prisoners had carried him away with them, the wish of a man who has nothing left but the smallest fraction of hope. Slowly, the world came into focus, and he regained his bearings. The thick stones of the floor were identical to those he had called home for three years. Improbable, beautiful, beautiful, Possible grass poked up between them. Aline had feared he would never be outside again. The walls formed a giant rectangle around him, wide enough to allow him space to run. He looked up to bask in the brilliant light of day. While there was a pounding in his head that had kicked in when he woke up, the rest of his body was free of pain. Aline had endured years in the darker chambers where any number of cruel practices were used in the name of justice. Counting his injuries had become a way of marking the time. He could learn how many days had passed since his last interrogation by noting the changing color of his bruises, the repairs in his flesh. But now, the lack of pain unsettled him. He'd heard rumors of more creative methods... There were limits to the rack, diminishing returns to fire and sharp metal. Eventually, your body reached a threshold where you did not want to live anymore, and yet you did. And when you somehow lived over and over again, you began to feel dead inside. The noise drew his attention behind him. A lattice of iron bars separated Aline from another area, cloaked in shadows. The darkness offered no indication of whether Aline was to be a participant in this torment or a spectator. He wasn't sure, but he could have sworn that from somewhere, maybe from heaven itself, he had heard a laugh. One large paw stepped out of the darkness near the iron gate. The forearm was thicker than Aline's head and it was covered in reddish-brown fur. Large claws reached towards him, Aline found himself taking a step back even though the bars separated him from the massive creature. His breathing was coming faster now and so were the noises from the dark. Aline had no place to hide if the bars were opened. He was alone in an empty space. The bar gate began to crank upwards and the animal retreated back to its corner. Aline hugged the wall keeping his eyes firmly trained on the ascending bars. The creature was still in shadow. Aline said a prayer to a god that he had not believed in for years. Aline closed his eyes. If he was going to be attacked, he wanted it over quickly. Death would release him from the years of suffering he'd endured. If the creature was fast enough, his agony could be over in mere seconds. But nothing happened. Aline could not even hear the animal anymore. Everything had gone silent. And then he saw the head. With its telltale snout and bushy ears, Aline found himself staring at a brown bear. Aline had seen these creatures from afar, near his village in the Carpathian Mountains. They were bigger up close, a lot bigger. His whole body went rigid. He stopped breathing. His father had taught him that you never run from bears. You move slowly. You give them space. You don't end up at a confined space with them. His eyes went wide as the creature stepped out into the sunlight. The bear's movements were slow, but he'd seen them run before. They were deceptively fast. As the bear made his way closer to the center of the space, Aline realized that if he could reach the enclosure where the bear had been kept, he might be able to pull down the gate behind him, shielding him from any attack. He shuffled his feet, limiting his movement as much as he possibly could. He moved slowly, keeping his eyes on the bear as he did so. Each tiny scuffing of the stone made his heart stop. But the bear's ears never perked up or tensed. Perhaps he could win this fight with his brain. Aline was halfway to safety when claws dug into the side of his scalp and pulled. In an instant, the bear had moved from the center of the stone rectangle to his side. Now it was dragging him over those stones with an almost bored affectation. The searing pain overrode the rest of his senses. He could not tell which direction he was moving in or how long this had been happening. He could not even tell if his scalp was still attached to his skull. The only thing he noticed was the trail of blood that followed behind him and the sensation of being ripped open. He struggled to stay awake, not sure if the pain would kill him. Through it all, he stayed silent. He wanted the bear to think it had been successful. Maybe then he would be left alone. But the darkness was growing around him, and soon he was drifting off into a buzzing, stinging unconsciousness. Aline woke from the pain. Half awake, he groaned in discomfort and moved his hand towards the back of his head. He touched bone. Before he could do more, there was a crushing sensation against his chest and the telltale pop of breaking bones. In his dreams, he had been safe from all kinds of creatures. Awake, he was not so lucky. The paws pressed deeply into his chest, settling in on top of Aline, the way an animal companion would. Were it not for the pain blazing through his body, It would have almost been like a protective gesture, the creature keeping him warm as the chill of the night came into the area, hitting the cold floors. (coughs) Aline coughed violently. Blood stained his hand. He fought for breath. He fought the weight of the bear against him. But he was losing. And just above him, he heard that laugh again. High above, blocking out the sky, were armored silhouettes. The same silhouettes who had passed by Aline's cell for years. The guards. They were watching him. Waiting for the bear to finish its work so they could go back to feeding it prisoners' corpses. That was Aline's final thought as he closed his eyes for the last time. For them, it was just a change of pace. There are several different accounts of the bear pits at Corvin. Some accounts state that the guards would simply toss the remains of the prisoners into the pit for the animals to feed on. Others say that it was the final form of punishment for certain prisoners. They would be thrown into the pit, and if the fall didn't kill them, well, bears certainly would. At least two bears were kept in this area, although there were also reports of wolves being held in the same location. Romania is actually one of the few places on Earth where brown bears are so common that they relate to the human population more like deer or wolves. Romanian shepherds often expect to lose a sheep or two to the creatures each season. And Romania's growing developments have resulted in many sightings of bear mothers and their cubs moving down suburban streets. Surrounded by the now-industrial city of Hunedwara, Corvin Castle is still one of medieval Europe's greatest architectural achievements. Any building that old is likely to have some ghosts. But Corvin's long dead prisoners and nobles are apparently very vocal, especially when dealing with outsiders. A group of tourists who hid at closing time to stay after hours were found by the castle staff the next day bruised, beaten and terrified. They claimed that a ghost had tortured them until the early morning. Corvin is a highly recommended tourist destination, and we personally encourage you to visit to see the architecture, the tragic well, and even the bear pit. But we beg of you, please, don't trespass. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. For more information on Corvin Castle and the historical Vlad III Dracula, amongst the many sources we used, we found the work of Romanian historian Kurt W. Treptow extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as podcasts, other shows, on Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Edmeyer and Carly Madden. This episode of Haunted Places is written by Lil Ritter and Jennifer Richey. I'm Greg Polson.